For God's sake, let us sit upon the ground and tell sad stories of the deaths of kings, how some have been deposed, some slain in war. I me, I see the ruin of my house. The tiger now hath seized the gentle hind. Insulting tyranny begins to jut upon the innocent and aweless throne. What is a man? Sure he made us with such large discourse, looking before and after, gave us not that capability and godlike reason to fust in us unused. O oh, my dear father, restoration hang thy medicine on my lips, and let this kiss repair those violent harms that my two sisters have in thy reverence made. I am a king that find thee, and I know, tis not the balm, the scepter and the ball, the sword, the mace, the crown imperial, the throne he sits on, nor the pomp that beats on the high shore of the world. This is the mighty history of the British Empire, a people living on a tiny island in the North Atlantic Ocean, built an empire that circled the earth, and brought freedom and education to languishing millions. This empire was blessed by Almighty God and one of his best educated teachers, William Shakespeare. Shakespeare has educated some of the greatest leaders of all time, such as Abraham Lincoln and Winston Churchill. We shall never surrender. Our troubled world needs a fresh crew of nation-building leaders. Are you ready to step up to the challenge? Welcome to the exciting classroom of Shakespeare's royal education with host Dennis Leap. Well, hello again, everyone. Welcome back to Shakespeare's royal education. And I am really happy to be back at the mic, ready to talk to you about one of my favorite subjects ever and that is a Shakespeare play. All right, so on our last podcast, I discussed the structure of all Shakespeare's plays, and if you can remember back that far, remember each play has five acts, but there's no set number of scenes. So the size of a play is determined by the number of scenes. I also discussed the unique double plot, or you could say plot and subplot that Shakespeare created for King Lear. And uh, I told you last time that in King Lear, it is the only play where Shakespeare uses a double plot. So this is a very special play, and uh, that's one of the reasons why I picked it first. And then, of course, I'll discuss more why I picked this one as we go through it. Now, um, I, I, want, I do want to discuss the, the plot and subplot more as we uh, actually are into uh, reading the play. And I'll discuss a little bit more of it today as we, as we read. Now, with special help from England, I also began reading Act 1, Scene 1 of King Lear. Now, we made it very close to the end of Act 1, uh, Scene 1. However, I did make a quick decision looking at the clock. Uh, I decided to not finish a revealing conversation between Goneril and Regan because of the shortness of time. I just didn't think I was going to make it. So, for today's program, I want to finish the reading the lines of the conversation, which is the, the final lines of Act 1, Scene 1. And again, I will be using help from England, and I deeply appreciate their efforts in England to help me make this uh, podcast spectacular. So then uh, we'll also begin reading and explaining Act 1, Scene 2. Now, before I do that, I always like to do that. Before I do that, I want to explain 
why Shakespeare put this conversation at the end of Act 1, Scene 1, so that you can better understand its importance. And it is a really, really re uh, revealing scene. Now, here's the, here, here's the big overview of this scene, and it's really all part of Act 1, Scene 1. So it's not a new scene. I don't want to confuse anybody out there and make you think it's a new scene. But essentially, uh, it, when we get to this conversation, Goneril and Regan are alone on stage. And that's, that's a significant move that Shakespeare designed, I think, for the play. And so uh, where we left off last time was uh, we're at page 14 and we're at line 289. And again, now this is in the Pelican. This is in my my uh, the the whole Pelican series is a series of books. Of course, there is a, a larger Pelican volume that has all the plays, but but I have the set that are individual plays in individual books. Now, es essentially, um, what happens here is you know Cordelia and her husband to be the King of France have just walked off stage. And, uh, you know, as they leave, Shakespeare makes sure there's this little conversation just between the two of them. Now the two sisters are still standing there. And, uh, but as they leave, this noble king comforts Cordelia by saying, Come, my fair Cordelia, and that is line 288. Now, the sisters are totally alone on stage. And what Shakespeare does this for, I think, that the reason why he does it, maybe I could say it that way, my... Uh, my sentence structure is, isn't so good right there. But uh, uh, Shakespeare uh, gives us now a detailed look at Goneril and Regan's true feelings towards their father. And uh, in some ways, this is a really uh, sad scene. It's a very intense scene. And uh, I'll explain that as we go, it, go through this. Okay. Now, remember, these were the daughters that were so profuse in expressing their love to their father. I mean, they were just exuberant. Even Cordelia was just absolutely miffed at what they were saying because she knew it was all fake. She knew it was all a lie. So uh, let's begin reading now at line 289. And um, essentially, this is, this is Goneril, and this is the, the older sister. And uh, here's what she says. Sister, it is not little I have to say of what most nearly appertains to us both. I think our father will hence tonight. Now, Regan answers... That's most certain, and with you. Next month, with us. And so, so we'll, just, we'll just stop there, uh, just for a minute now, and I, I want to explain what's going on. So, so to, to really understand what they're, they're referring to here is we're going to have to go back to Act 1, Scene 1, Line 131. <laughs> and... Uh, uh, essentially, these two sisters are hearkening back to what they heard Lear told uh, to Albany in Cornwall. And so if you can go back uh, to Act 1, Scene 1, and uh, line 131, in my book, it's page 8. And if you remember uh, the notation I told you about, so, so we're going to do this throughout the uh, podcast series, so you're going to have to make sure you know where the page number is and where the act number is, the X scene number is, and the line numbers. So, uh, but, but this is where, uh, at, at my page eight, again, it's act one, scene one, line 131. This is when uh, Lear is talking to Albany in Cornwall. And es essentially what he's doing is he is investing them with his power as king. And uh, 
in in the the last program we talked about the corn that they were giving so given so they they had their own little crown that they were they were sharing but i'm going to read uh lear's lines we're not going to go back to you know our friends in england on this one i'll just read it so from at line 131 it says i do invest you jointly with my power preeminence in all the large effects that troop with majesty and so so here lear he's he's giving them his kingly power. He says, Ourself by monthly course with reservation of a hundred nights by you to sustain shall our abode. And so, so essentially what he's saying there is really kind of shocking. Um, he says, I'm going to give you my power. I'm going to give you, uh, you know, kind of like the majesty. But what, what he's reserving and what he wants them to do is he wants them to take him in to their homes once a month, uh, one month at a time. So in other words, he's got the two daughters there. He's banished Cordelia. And so he's saying, well, I'm going to give you this. I'm going to give you this power. But now you're in return going to let me come and stay with you for a month at a time. So he's going to go to Goneril's house for a month at a time. He's going to go to Regan's house for a month at a time. But it's not just him. He's going to take a hundred knights with him as well. So, so uh, you, you can imagine probably how this affected them. And, and uh, actually on stage at, at this scene, they say nothing about it. They, they say, um, you know, all they're saying is they love him. They, they, you know, they just, just are madly in love with him. They love him more than they love their husbands. And so, but they do hear this. And, and he goes on to say, by you to be sustained shall our abode make with you by due turn. And, and so he's saying, you have to sustain us. So in other words, not only do they take him in, but they've got to feed him in a hundred nights. <laughs> That's a lot of people. I can't imagine, I, you know, I have four daughters. I can't imagine if I was King Lear and I said to them, okay, I'm coming home for a month at a time and I'm bringing in a hundred nights. You know, that just would never happen. <laughs> it's not going to happen. But then he says one other thing there, and uh, it's, it's really kind of critical that we get it, and, and sometimes you don't get it when you're first reading, and I didn't mention it the last time. It says, only we shall retain the name and all the addition to a king. So, so what he's saying is I'm going to give up all this property. I'm going to give up my palace. I'm going to give up, uh, you know, uh, my authority to you. But I want to keep the name king, and I want all the honors of a king. That's essentially what he's saying. And by the way, you're going to have to feed my hundred knights. And and if you also remember, and this is just a thought I had now while reading this. If you also remember, remember he said that he was doing this because he was going off to death. But essentially, if you look at what he's doing, he's going to be partying with a hundred knights. <laughs> They're going to be having a great time at the daughter's expense, of course. And so, so this is this is what they're hearkening back to, is now they're saying something. But if you if you, I think a, a great question to ask at this point is why didn't they say something then? I mean, why didn't they say, "Hey, Dad, this is not right"? They didn't say it, and uh, the reason why they didn't say it is because they wanted to make sure they got the land and the dowries. And so all of what they were talking about. Uh, was just all made up fake 
love so that they could get the money and the and the dowries. And of course, um, you know, Cordelia Cordelia saw through it right away. All right. So so essentially, um, that when uh, Goneril was talking, she 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 says, "I think our father will hence tonight." And so so in other words. They realized he was going to make that decision and do it the first night. I mean, just that same night. And so uh, uh, here's how Regan then responds. That's most certain and with you. Next month with us. So the, the, the point is there is Regan is saying, oh, yeah, he's coming to your house tonight and he's going to be at at uh, our house next month. So so uh, there there you have it. These two girls are really concerned now that they're going to be stuck with dad. They got the money, they got the dowries, but they don't want dad. And so, so it's, it's, really, it's really quite, quite sad. So essentially from this conversation then what happens is that they begin to think a little bit more and a little bit more. And so essentially what begins to happen is they began to scheme against their father. And so... so uh, this is this is really sad. So I'll continue now, uh, or maybe I should say it this way. We'll continue now with Goneril, and there will be line 294. You see how full of changes his age is. The observation we have made of it hath not been little. He always loved our sister most, and with what poor judgment he hath now cast her off appears too grossly. So that's Goneril now. And again, remember, she's the oldest daughter. And essentially, if you if you really kind of read and unpack what's said here, he says, she's saying, basically, yeah, well, our father's getting really flighty in his old age. <laughs> you know, he's he's uh, he's going senile. He 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 can't get it together. And uh, you know, she's really really concerned. And uh, he said, uh, this observation we made of it hath not been little. So you know, they're saying it's it's not just. A little problem is is he's really getting flighty. He can't make good decisions. And then she also reveals, he also loved our sister most, and with what poor judgment he has now cast her off appears too grossly. Or, or essentially what she's saying is it's obvious he loved Cordelia more than he loved us. So, so look at what's coming out now. This did not come out, come out in front of him. They didn't, they didn't say anything about it. All right, then, uh, then Regan responds. "'Tis the infirmity of his age, yet he has ever but slenderly known himself." So again, some of this wording is a little hard to understand, but, but, but essentially she says, "'Tis the infirmity of his age,' meaning he's senile. And, uh, you know, she also also goes on to say, "Yet has, hath, yet he hath ever but slenderly known himself." And in other words, what she's saying is, he never really did understand his his own self, and he's had these problems, you know, for years. He he just didn't even know really what he was doing, and so so uh, again, this this doesn't sound to me like a daughter that really does love him more than her older sister loved him. All right, now back to Goneril. The best and soundest of his time have been but rash. Then must we look to receive from his age, not alone the imperfections of long engraft condition, but therewithal the unruly waywardness that infirm and choleric years bring with them. 
And so, so uh, it, 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 essentially what she's saying here is our dad has always been crazy. <laughs> it's like he's always been rash, even from a young age. And, and essentially what she's saying, now it's getting even worse. And uh, he's even more rash. And uh, essentially when you look at that line, the best and soundest of his time have been but rash. And so, so uh, th this has been going on his entire life. And so, so they're now getting word that they're going to get really stuck with it. All right, let's, uh, let's get in there with Regan now. And so she says, Such unconstant starts are we like to have from him as this of Kent's banishment. So, so uh, essentially what they're saying, uh, you know, they're kind of commiserating together that, wow, now we're going we're gonna to go through what Kent just went through. I mean, we're, we're going to have to deal with, you know, you know he just automatically bent, uh, you know, banished Kent what other unconstant starts is he going to have and that they're going to have to deal with? So, so, so they've seen what really happened in that, um, you know, in that whole exchange. So they're getting concerned for themselves. Okay, now let's look at what Goneril, how she responds. There is further compliment of leave-taking between France and him. Pray you, let us hit together. If our father carry authority with such dispositions as he bears, this last surrender of his will but offend us. Now, that is probably the most tragic comment in this whole conversation. And essentially what they're saying is, oh, by the way, there's going to be this kind of going away party for France, the king of France. So they are going to have to see Cordelia one more time, I'm sure. But they're saying, look... It, it, we need to get together and we need to decide something here. And essentially what they're doing is they're getting together and they're going to work to break their father's authority. In other words, what he said, I want you to, you know, to remember me as king and accept my authority as king. And what they're deciding here now is no way. That's not going to happen. We're not going to do that. So they're scheming on how they can basically break their father's, you know, his life, break his position, break his feelings about himself. And then uh, there's just two simple lines right there, you know, Regan and Goneril. We shall further think on it. We must do something and in the heat. And essentially what that means is we better do something right away while, while the fire is hot. And so, so that's the end of Act One, Scene One. And here, the two sisters that love their father the most, love them more than her husbands, are now getting together and they're scheming that they're going to, uh, you know, break their father's authority over them. And essentially, they want to, you know, dethrone him. And they certainly do not want a hundred knights at their houses. All right. So, uh, um, let me just uh, let me just say this. Um, one one of the things that Shakespeare is doing here is is this whole this Act One, Scene One has set up the the one plot that I've been talking about, and essentially what it does is it talks about how Shakespeare is giving us the view of Lear and his personal problems. I mean he he is he's rash he's angry. 
Uh, he's quick to make you know judgments. He makes stupid judgments. I guess this has been a pattern in his whole life. Uh, he's now uh, he's now revealed to us he's got problem with his daughters. Uh, he obviously favored Cordelia, and the other two are jealous. And uh, uh, essentially, they they cried out how much they love them, but they don't really love them, and they don't really want to have to deal with him. And so, so that is the beginning of plot one. And so, so when we go now to Act One, Scene Two, and that's on my page fifteen, essentially, Shakespeare is beginning to to give us the view of the second plot or the subplot. And essentially, what what uh, we're going to begin to see is the problems in Gloucester's family. And so, so essentially, what you have is you you have the plots. In this play, you're going to have the plot about what happens to Lear's family, and then you're going to have the plot of what happens within Gloucester's family. And uh, um, so, so I think it's it's really interesting. And then he weaves these two plots together, and they actually the families actually come together and they meet each other uh, in the play. So it's, it's so important that you understand this. All right. So, uh, so it, to, to set up the scene here in Act One, Scene Two, essentially where we are, we've now moved from Lear's palace, and now we're going to, I would say, Gloucester's estate. And so, so essentially, what we're seeing now is what the home base of each of the plots. And uh, it, it's, to me, it's, it's um, kind of interesting how this opens, because it opens with a soliloquy of Edmund. And uh, essentially, if you look at your your uh, stage settings, and again, this would be Act 1, Scene 2, and again, that's on my page 15. But it says that uh, that Edmund enters, he's alone, and he's holding a letter. And so so that's how this play, be this part of the play begins. And um, uh, essentially, it's, it's a, an, a really uh, amazing soliloquy, and I'll explain this, uh, you know, after after it's read to you. And again, now, in this this scene, what I want you to know is is uh, we we won't get the whole thing done today, but but I'll be uh, reading Gloucester's lines, and uh, the Edmund's lines are being read by a friend from England, and so will his brother Edgar's lines be read from a friend from England, and so Edmund. Uh, you know, starts us out uh, in this play, part of the play, excuse me. Thou, nature, art my goddess. To thy law my services are bound. Wherefore should I stand in the plague of custom and permit the curiosity of nations to deprive me? For that I am some twelve or fourteen moonshines lag of a brother. Why, bastard? Wherefore, base? When my dimensions are as well compact, my mind as generous and my shape as true as honest madam's issue. Why brand they us with base, with baseness, bastardy, base, base? Who in the lusty stealth of nature take more composition and fierce quality than doth within a dull, stale, tired bed? Go to the creating a whole tribe of fops. Go tween asleep and awake. Well then, legitimate Edgar. I must have your land. Our father's love is to the bastard Edmund as to the legitimate. Fine word, legitimate. Well, my legitimate, 
If this letter speed and my intervention thrive, Edmund the base shall top the legitimate. I grow, I prosper. Now, gods, stand up for bastards. Now, once that soliloquy ends, uh, Gloucester enters the scene. And uh, the, the, the thing is, is before we get into that, let's go back now and just unpack what Edmund is saying in this soliloquy. And uh, again, one thing that I, that I have to say is that um, just like for Goneril's um, and uh, Reagan's conversation, we almost have to go back to uh, uh, the beginning of the, of the whole play and if you if you remember back to the the beginning of Act One, Scene One, you know there was this conversation between Gloucester and Kent, and it, it was it was about Edmund's birth. And Edmund is standing right there, and the the, the whole scene there. If you go back, I, I suggest you go back and read it all again. But it, it's obvious that that they were talking about the legitimate son. Edgar, and they were talking about a bastard or illegitimate son, Edmund. And the, the thing is, that you may not pick it up if you're not looking at an actor that's trained how to do this, but he was really embarrassed by what Gloucester did to him in front of Kent. This is one of the noblemen, and, and he's just kind of uh, flippantly talking about how, you know, there was this great sport at his, his birth, you know, that, that uh, he's legitimate. I mean, he's, he's illegitimate, but I don't love him any less than the legitimate. And so, so essentially, uh, th that whole scene made him bitter, made him more bitter. And uh, essentially, this is where Edmund then begins to answer what his father was saying at the very beginning of the play. And so, so again, to me, this is really a genius move on Shakespeare's part because he gives us just a little bit at the beginning and now he's going to begin to answer it or give us more details. And, and, and essentially, this whole soliloquy is essentially about Edmund's dissatisfaction with society's attitude towards illegitimate children. And or as, uh, you know, they were just very easy to call them bastards. And uh, he's really bitter about it. And, uh, you know, and, and essentially as we go through this, we're finding out that he's now going to scheme against his own brother who's legitimate. And uh, uh, it, it's, really, it's really kind of amazing uh, soliloquy here. Notice he says, Thou, nature, art my goddess. To thy law my services are bound. Wherefore should I stand in the plague of custom and permit the curiosity of nations to deprive me? Now, essentially what he's saying is, look, I'm turning, I'm turning my life over to nature. And nature, you're my goddess. And notice he says, to your law, my services are bound. So, so essentially what, what uh, uh, Edmund is saying, he's going to start depending on the law of, laws of nature. Or maybe we really should say he's going to start depending on the, the, the laws of nature, the way he interprets them. But, but he's saying, look, wherefore shall I stand in the plague of custom and permit the curiosity of nations to deprive me? Now, that, those phrases there, plague of custom, he's talking about the customs in Lear and Gloucester society. That's what he's talking about. He's talking about these customs. And, and obviously, 
Lear, uh, you know, he has some unusual ways of ruling. And yet, yet someone like Edmund would still have to suffer under it. And, uh, you know, he says the curiosity of nations uh, to deprive me, that really means these are the legal, uh, let's say, legal laws written down. That's, the, that's what the word means, the curiosity of nations. They deprived bastard children, and essentially what he's talking about, he, is, he does not have access to the inheritance. He's still his father's son, but he's, his brother, who was you know, born from a legitimate marriage, he gets the money. He gets the land. He gets the property. And uh, uh, he, he goes on there. He says, look, and, and it, it kind of is revealing here. He says, for, for thy am some 12 or 14 moonshines lag of a brother. So, so essentially, he's, he's just a year younger, or maybe a year, a year and two months younger than his older brother. And so what does that reveal about Gloucester? And, and his flaws as a father, here he's, he's got some mistress that, you know, he's now has another son with. And so, so it just shows that, uh, you know, the Gloucester was really not very sensitive to, to uh, you know, his son. He said, look, he said, why, why call me a bastard? Wherefore base? He said, my dimensions are as well compact. In other words, even Kent said that in the beginning. You know, he says, uh, Gloucester said to him, do you see a fault? And he says, no, uh, I don't see a fault. And that's because, obviously, Edmund has a lot of ability. And he says, I'm well compact. You know, and, and he, had, he had a good mind. He says, my mind is generous. And he says, my, my shape as true as honest madam's issue. He says, look, where am I any really different than my brother? You know, why, why am I, you know, isolated? Why am I put out? Why am I not getting the same treatment my brother's getting? And, uh, you know, you can understand why this is, uh, these were the laws at that time. He says, why brand they us with base, with baseless, bastardy base, base, who in the lusty stealth of nature take more composition and fierce quality. And so essentially here he's beginning to, um, you know, kind of like uh, uh, reveal his resentment towards legitimate marriage. And uh, essentially he says, well, his, his uh, you know, his mother that uh, brought him up or, or, you know, conceived him. Uh, she was more vital. It, was, it wasn't a dull, a dull bed. It was an active thing. And, and he says, yeah, that, but the, these legitimate children, it, it says, notice on top of page uh, 16, then doth within a dull, stale, tired bed go to the creating of a whole tribe of fops. And so he said, yeah, there's a legitimate marriages. They're just, they're just creating more fops. You know, the, 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 these, these uh, uh, you know, these legitimate sons are just fops. And it, when you see a play or when you see a movie of it, generally the, the producer will make Edgar look like a little bit of a fop in the beginning. I know uh, I really love the Royal Shakespeare Company uh, uh, film of the play King Lear. They did it right from the stage. And when Edgar shows up, he's playing like soccer with a bunch of another guys. In other words, he's just into playing games and everything. But um, anyway, he said uh, that, that really, if you look at that one line, go, got caught, and he's talking about being begotten. And these legitimate children are begotten between sleep and wake. 
<laughs> in other words, it's not even a, uh, it's, it's not something alive. It just happens. And, uh, you know, they're, they're fops, you know, they're, they're, they're worthless people. Uh, he goes on, he says, well then legitimate editor, I'm legitimate Edgar, I must have your land. And so, so here's the scheme. He is scheming now where he is going to get, get, uh, rid of Edgar so he can take the land so he can get the estate. And, uh, so he's, he's, he's got this scheme all planned out and it has to do with the letter. He says, our father's love is to the bastard Edmund as to the legitimate fine word, legitimate. Well, my legitimate, if this letter speed and my invention thrive, Edmund the base shall top the legitimate. I grow, I prosper. Now gods stand up for bastards. And so, so again, that's, that's a pretty intense soliloquy, but it really gives us a lot of information. And really, it points back, I think, very clearly to that act one, scene one, where Gloucester is just kind of flippantly talking about his birth. And uh, surely he was embarrassed, really greatly embarrassed in front of Kent. All right. Now, um, to continue with the scene, uh, Gloucester enters, and he sees Edmund reading a letter. So remember, I'm going to be Gloucester, so don't expect a British accent with Gloucester. As good as I'd like to try, I don't want to embarrass myself. All right. Here's what Gloucester says. Can't banish thus, and France and collar parted, and the king gone tonight? Prescribed his power, confined to exhibition, all this done upon the gad? Edmund, how now? What news? So please your lordship, none. Why so earnestly seek you to put up the letter? I know no news, my lord. What paper were you reading? Nothing, my lord. No? What needeth then that terrible dispatch of it into your pocket? The quality of nothing has not such need to hide itself. Let's see. Come, if it is be nothing, I shall not need spectacles. I beseech you, sir, pardon me. It is a letter from my brother that I have not all overread, and for so much as I have perused, I find it not fit for your overlooking. Give me the letter, sir. I shall offend, either to detain or give it. The contents, as in part I understand them, are to blame. Let's see, let's see. I hope for my brother's justification. He wrote this as an essay or taste of my virtue. Now Gloucester reads the letter. This policy and reverence of age makes the world bitter to the best of our times, keeps our fortunes from us till our oldness cannot relish them. I begin to find an idol and fond bondage in the oppression of age tyranny who sways, not as, it, not as it hath power, but as it is suffered. Come to me, that of this I may speak more. If our father would sleep till I waked him, you should enjoy half his revenue forever and live. The beloved of your brother, Edgar. Hmm. Conspiracy. Sleep till I waked him? You should enjoy half his revenue? My son Edgar? Hath he had a hand to write this? A heart and brain to breed it in? When came you to this? Who brought it? It was not brought me, my lord. There's the cunning of it. I found it thrown in at the casement of my closet. You know the character to be your brother's? If the matter were good, my lord, 
I durst swear it were his, but, in respect of that, I would fain think it were not. It is his. It is his hand, my lord, but I hope his heart is not in the contents. Has he ever been before sounded you in this business? Never, my lord, but I have often heard him maintain it to be fit that, sons at perfect age, and fathers declined, the father should be as ward to the son, and the son manage his revenue. Oh, villain, villain, his very opinion in the letter, abhorred villain, unnatural, detested, brutish villain, worse than brutish, go, Sirrah, seek him, I'll apprehend him, abominable villain, where is he? I do not well know, my lord. If it shall please you to suspend your indignation against my brother, till you can derive from him better testimony of his intent, you shall run a certain course, where, if you violently proceed against him, mistaking his purpose, it would make a great gap in your own honour, and shake in pieces the heart of his obedience. I dare pawn down my life for him, that he hath writ this to feel my affection to your honour, and to no other pretense of danger. Think you so? If your honour judge it meet, I will place you where you shall hear us confer of this, and by an auricular assurance have your satisfaction, and that without any further delay than this very evening. He cannot be such a monster. Nor is not, sure. To his father that so tenderly and entirely loves him, heaven and earth. Edmund, seek him out. Wind me into him, I pray you. Frame the business after your own wisdom. I would unstate myself to be in a due resolution. I will seek him, sir, presently. Convey the business as I shall find means and acquaint you with all. These late eclipses in the sun and moon portend no good to us. Though the wisdom of nature can reason it thus and thus, yet nature finds itself scourged by the sequent effects. Love cools, friendship falls off, brothers divide. In cities, mutinies, in countries, discord, in palaces, treason, and the bond cracked twixt son and father. This villain of mine comes under the prediction, there's son against father, the king falls from bias of nature, the father's against child, we have seen the best of our time. Machinations, hollowness, treachery, all ruinous disorders follow us directly to our graves. Find out this villain, Edmund, it shall lose thee nothing. Do it carefully, and the noble and the true-hearted Kent banished. His offense, honesty, tis strange. Now, Gloucester exits the scene, and we have another soliloquy from Edmund. This is the excellent foppery of the world, that, when we are sick in fortune, often the surfeit of our own behaviour, we make guilty of our disasters the sun, the moon, and the stars, as if we were villains by necessity, fools by heavenly compulsion, knaves, thieves, and treacherers by spherical predominance, drunkards, liars, and adulterers by an enforced obedience of planetary influence, and all that we are evil in by a divine thrusting on, an admirable evasion of hall-mastery man, to lay his goatish disposition to the charge of a star. My father compounded with my mother under the dragon's tail, and my nativity was under Ursa Major, so that it follows I am rough and lecherous, so foot, 
I should have been that I am had the maidenliest star in the firmament twinkled on my bastardizing. Edgar. Now enters Edgar. And pat he comes, like the catastrophe of the old comedy. My cue is villainous melancholy, with a sigh like Tom O'Bedlam. Oh, these eclipses do portend these divisions. Fa sol la mi. All right, well, let's, let's end right there and let's go back and uh, look at some of the highlights of this scene. And uh, we're not going to be able to read the whole, the whole scene today. And, uh, but we can discuss some of the highlights here. So, so we already talked about his uh, first soliloquy there. But uh, one thing I wanted to point out is, is uh, when Gloucester comes home uh, and sees Edmund reading this letter, what we have to understand is Gloucester is really upset by what he's just witnessed with King Lear. I mean, he's, he saw his best friend Kent banished. He sees Cordelia banished. Um, you know, he sees Lear has given up, you know, his authority to his two son-in-laws and essentially to the two daughters. And, um, you know, he, he's just as, he's really, you know, all emotionally, you know, distraught over all of this. And so there's another thing revealed in that line 23, and this is on page 16, he says, Kent banished thus, and France in collar parted. And so so there's a little bit more information. So if you remember, we talked a little bit about Goneril and Regan in their conversation, and then all of a sudden they said, oh, we've got to go off to say goodbye to the king of France. Well, well here, Kent is giving us some more information that that, that situation didn't go well, that uh, actually the king of France uh, left and he was really angry when he left. He was angry by what happened to his uh, soon-to-become wife Cordelia, and so so you can see uh, Shakespeare really added another little detail there that you can miss. And uh, uh, again, it's 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 all uh, the way Shakespeare's writing. He's tying everything together, and uh, you know we're seeing that uh, there was the plot. Now there's the subplot. But notice he still intertwines what's happening in Lear's family with what's happening now in his family. And so uh, what it really shows, I think, uh, after this is Edmund then comes on the scene with Gloucester. And you can see you can see Edmund's problem, but then you can also see what Gloucester's problem is. And, uh, you know, I, I could, if you were in class, I'd say, so what do you think Gloucester's problem is? I mean, obviously, we can see Edmund's. Edmund is, uh, he's really upset that he's legitimate. He's, a, he's upset that, uh, you know, he's not going to get the estate. He feels he's just as good and maybe even better than his brother. But, but the one thing you have to see here is, uh, I think we could honestly say when we, we look at that first scene with, with Lear, we can see he doesn't make good decisions. You know, he's rash, he's angry, he's follow, he follows his emotions. But when you, when you look at this scene with Gloucester, um, in some ways, he's blind as, as Lear is. And he can't, he can't discern that Edmund is really setting him up. And that's really what's really sad, is that he's setting him up to begin to hate his, his, uh, the legitimate brother. And, you know, it's, it's funny uh, the way Shakespeare puts it all together. And uh, Edmund actually has some wise 
observations here, especially the fact that Gloucester is so, so convinced uh, that, that, you know, it's like the stars and the moon and the sun, and it's like they're all gods controlling everything on the earth. And that, you know, he, he goes into this whole explanation that, wow, this must have happened to Edgar because of the, there's something going off in the universe or there's some, some uh, you know, there's star, some star arrangement or, or planetary arrangement that's causing all this to happen. And uh, Edmund sees that, even though he said nature, you know, you're my goddess, he says, this is a, this is foppery, you know, and, and even Edmund says here, we bring this stuff on ourselves. And so, so, but, but Gloucester can't see things right. I mean, if, if uh, you would think that he would be able to have a little more confidence in, in Edgar, if, if Edgar is his legitimate son and is going to take over, you would think he would understand him a little better. And uh, uh, when we, when we actually finally get in there with Edmund, I mean, Edgar, we're going to see that, that uh, even he's kind of naive. And, uh, and actually very selfish. He's, he's a very selfish, spoiled, legitimate child. And so, uh, so you can see where, where Edmund uh, can, really, can really capture Gloucester. And, and essentially, Gloucester believes Edmund. He doesn't even, hasn't even talked to his son yet. And, and yet he believes the son has really turned against him, or the, you know, the legitimate son. And... Uh, uh, so, so you can you can see that, that you know they have this little fight over the letter. He gets the letter, and uh, you know really, it's a false letter. It's 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 Edmund that drafted the letter, and so you know you can see uh, that there's this big conversation in the middle here about well, is it his is it his handwriting? Is this really written by Edgar? And uh, you know, but uh, uh, Edmund wasn't stupid enough. He he uh, mimicked his handwriting and so so uh but but you, you just wonder the big question you want to ask is why before gloucester went kind of berserk like he did and believe what he did why didn't he get more information and uh um so so you're, you're going to see as these two subplots develop that uh um you know both men begin to realize their own weaknesses in other words lear begins to realize his and Gloucester begins to realize his. But what they have to face, the reality of what they've created, and there's going to be all these tragedies that happen within both families. And it's like they can't stop it. And so so it is it, it is really interesting. So if we just go over to page 17 and we go to like line, uh, you know, this is Act 1, Scene 2, around line 69 and 70. This is where they're talking about his handwriting. And uh, notice he said, uh, well, if we go out to line 63, it says, you know the character to be your brother's. And Edmund says, if the matter were good, my lord, I dare swear it is his. But in that respect, but in respect of that, I would fain think it were not. And so, so this is a conniver. I mean, you can see how, how um, intelligent uh, Edmund really is. And, and it's, it's almost like... Uh, He's almost exactly like the character Iago in Othello, and uh, it's like he's he's acting like Satan the devil. He's a, just a really intelligent, and he can really manipulate people and deceive them at the same time. And so, uh, uh, notice what what he also says. Gloucester then says it is his, 
And then Edmund says, it is his hand, my lord, but I hope his heart is not in the contents. So, so what a lie. And, uh, you know, one of the things I think in the, in the play that is good is that, that all of us need to become, you know, I, I think more honest in our own lives. In other words, live by the truth. And I think a person that really lives by high standards and lives by the truth and only speaks the truth, it's much easier to tell when someone else is lying. And uh, but Gloucester, again, uh, even his, his uh, illegitimate son calls him a fop, a fop because uh, you know he's he's into the gods, and uh, you know it's it's a uh, he sees it all as foppery. So um, notice Gloucester in some ways just keeps winding himself deeper and deeper into the problem. At the top of page uh, 18, line 71, he says, has he never before silenced you in this business? And Edmund says, never, my lord, but I have heard him oft maintain it to be fit that sons at perfect age and fathers declined, the father should be ward to the son and the son manage his revenue. And so, so uh, here Edmund is really playing on um, Gloucester's own fears about his own age. And, you know, it, 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 he's easy, easily manipulated. So, so one of the things, uh, and uh, I, don't, I don't think I'm taking this too far, but, but if, you, if you put this in the real world and someone else is doing this to their own father, you have to admit that that son really studied the father to be able to figure all this out, really, really studied him to figure out, well, yeah, I can, I can get to him, and I, I can bring this up that, that uh, yes, Edgar says, look, when, when sons get to a certain mature age and the fathers are getting too old to manage their, their fortunes, then the sons should take control of the fortunes and then help the father. Well, that just set Gloucester off. And then he says, oh, villain, villain, his very opinion in the letter a poor villain, unnatural, detested, brutish villain, who's worse than brutish. Go, Sarah, seek him. I'll apprehend him. Abominable villain, where is he? So, so Gloucester just accepts everything that Edmund says about Edgar, and he said he's just calling his legitimate son, um, who obviously he loves most. Remember, he said that that he doesn't love Edmund least, but. He says, uh, it kind of indicates that he loves them the same. But remember now, um, you know, Edgar is, what, a year older. And so he, he knows Edgar better. And so uh, it's almost like Gloucester's not being honest with himself. Uh, Edmund goes on to respond and says, I do not well know, my lord, if it shall please you to suspend your indignation against my brother till you can derive from him better testimony of his intent. Now, you see, Edmund, I mean, that, that's a, he's a smart guy. He's saying, look, uh, Dad, maybe you better suspend your judgment until you can actually talk to my brother and get more information from him. That's what he should have been doing. But here, it's like he's relying on a son to, to think right. And remember now, even from the beginning of the play, Edmund has been gone out of the scene for nine years. And now he's just back in the scene, and his, his, Gloucester is just listening to everything he says and believing it. And so, so uh, 
you know, if, if he's gone from him for nine years, he doesn't know him that well. And so, so uh, it's almost like you can hear Satan in the background telling him, look, just do it this way. You know, uh, if you're violently proceeding against him, mistaking his purpose, it could make a great gap in your own honor and shake in pieces the heart of his obedience. And so, so he's saying, look, if you're not careful, you could hurt your own honor in this. And then also, uh, you know, if, you're, if your son isn't doing this, you could really shake his obedience to you. In other words, you could bring more problems on yourself. And uh, uh, he goes on to say, I dare pawn down my life for him that he, brought, that he hath writ this to feel my affection to your honor. And so, so what, what he's saying is, and this, this is like the critical, um, devious part of this whole thing. He said, you know what, Dad, I think, I think my brother wrote this letter to me to feel where, to feel what I think about you. <laughs> now, to me, that's pretty devious, and uh, you know, it, you can see it's just playing with his mind. And uh, he says, "Well, um, you know, notice what Gloucester says." And think you so? Do you think that could be true? And he said, "If your honor judge it meet, I will place you where you shall hear us confer." of this and by auricular assurance have your satisfaction that without any further delay than this very evening and so he says look th this should have been a big clue to gloucester right there he says look i'll set it up we'll put you in a secret place where you can't be seen and i'll get him to confess what's really going on with this and so again that's the same thing that happens uh, in the play Othello, which we will talk about. I mean, we'll, we'll, we'll be covering Othello in this series, you know, a long, uh, a long time from now. So uh, uh, then notice uh, Gloucester says he cannot be such a monster. And then uh, uh, again, um, you know, Edmund, Edmund comes back and says, nor is it not sure, Dad. It's, it's, it's probably okay. So... So let's just see where this goes, is, is what he's saying. So anyway, um, uh, Gloucester is pretty upset. He says, to his father that so tenderly and entirely loves him, heaven and earth, uh, Edmund, seek him out, wind me into him. I pray you, frame the business after your own wisdom. I would unstate myself to be in a due resolution. So so it's uh, it's looking pretty pretty bad there. And, uh, you know, it's... it's uh, it, it's something, like I said, Shakespeare is such a genius with this, and uh, but, but he's really taking us deep inside human nature, and he's creating these characters, and there's going to be a lot of lessons that that we can learn from this. Well, that's all the time I have for today's program. On our next program, I will continue discussing and reading William Shakespeare's King Lear, Act One, Scene Two. Now, you can buy good used copies of Shakespeare's plays at abebooks.com. You may be also able to find copies in your local bookstore. And of course, you can also check your local library. Please write me any comments you may have to comments at kpcg.fm. You can also comment on my Twitter page, and it is titled Shakespeare's Royal Education. So join me next time as we advance our royal education. Mm -hmm.
You've been listening to Shakespeare's Royal Education on Trumpet Radio. 101.3 KPCG, streaming online at kpcg.fm and thetrumpet.com.